For many years, Russ Grab was a spokesperson with the RCMP, providing information and context to many high-profile police events in our province and in our country. My early days as a crime reporter, I certainly ran into Russ many a time. He retired from the RCMP as a superintendent and became an executive boardroom consultant. He currently lives in North Vancouver with his wife, Marianne, and in 1920, he was diagnosed with a rare form of incurable leukemia cancer. His book, Traces of a Boy, delves into his lifelong journey coping with childhood trauma while leading a high-profile policing career, and he joins us now. Russ, great to see you. Great to see you too. Thanks for having me on. It's been a long time, my friend. I'm glad you're in, and I'm so glad to chat with you about this book. Uh, a fabulous book, first of all, and, and I meet a lot of authors, and it takes a lot of time, energy, and have to give of yourself to write a book, and I really appreciate you making time for us today and to share, share some of um, your journey. Uh, a lot here uh, in regards to your personal life, but also uh, your public life as well. Uh, and it's a difficult thing to write sometimes, uh, books, especially the story that you've told here. Uh, why did you feel you needed to write a book? Well, first, I should probably start off by saying why I didn't write this book. Uh, as you know, it's it's a memoir depicting uh, extensive early life trauma that mm-hmm. I experienced long before I joined the RCMP. So I didn't write the book for commercial gain, for industry recognition, or to stand as the poster boy for any noble cause. I simply wrote it to get my story out there, to tell the world what kind of person I really was behind the the crisp blue uniform that everyone saw on TV night after night for two Mm -hmm. years back in the late 1990s. Um, The real story here, Jazz, is that I'm not just some ex-RCMP superintendent who spent the better part of 30 years investigating perverse criminal violence I'm not just that guy about which you mentioned that was seen on national TV pretty well night after night for two years in the late 1990s. Yes, it's true that I got involved in cold case murder uh, files. Yes, it's true that Paul Bernardo, the, the famous serial killer, was my backyard neighbor as a kid. Yes, it's true, like you, I traveled the world, you know, Hong Kong, Manila, the the Philippines, all over the world doing RCMP stuff. and um, But the real story here, Jazz, is that I am myself the survivor of perverse criminal violence. More to the point, I'm the survivor of grotesque childhood incest. Yes, I said the I word, mm-hmm. incest. You see, starting at age three in the 1960s, I was relentlessly beaten sexually defiled and gaslit into a perpetual state of excited delirium by my very own mother. It was absolutely repugnant. It was cruel. It was the height of inhumanity. It caused deep shame and despair that still haunts me to this very day. It went on for over 11 years, from age 3 to age 14, the answer to your question, why did I want to write this book? Mm-hmm. To tell the, the true story of what really lies behind something like this. This book is written for anyone out there in your list, listening audience who wants to know what it's really like to survive the unsurvivable as a child and later go on to live an adult life replete with mental health and addiction, chaos and heartache, And as I openly confess in my book, inexcusable decadence, debauchery, and frankly, 
unforgivable human stupidity on my part. I start writing the book when I was first diagnosed with leukemia in the first wave of COVID Mm -hmm. in 2020. It struck me that the time was now to get going with pen to paper. I was told at the time that I had a life expectancy of two to three years max. And as I say, it struck me that this is the time to write my memoir, to tell the true story of what really lay behind the so-called famous Russ grab from the RCMP from the 1990s. I do want to talk about your policing career, but I want to talk about what you've just addressed here. And I was, when I was reading your book, uh, I have this one uh, excerpt uh, highlighted. Um, one of the, the question was, uh, how does a child navigate through such madness? Um, and what you wrote was, the answer to this question goes back to what I once said about compartmentalization. When you're too small to fight, and too young to flee, you simply reconfigure reality inside your brain. Some children, for example, conjure up imaginary friends with whom they share all their fears. It's what Andy meant by second cousin to Harvey the Rabbit in Shawshank Redemption. For the rest of us, mere mortals, well, we we simply blame ourselves and idolize our tormentors. It's a quick and easy way to survive the unsurvivable. After all, if your tormentors are perfect beings with absolutely no faults, then it's only f- then it only follows that they could never have done anything bad to us. It actually follows that nothing bad ever happened, period. We just will it so in our brains. How long did you carry this, that, what you describe here? Well, the art of compartmentalization so that I could actually survive and not go completely insane dogged me from age 3 to 63. I only first started to shed myself of this affliction called compartmentalization when I started to undergo chemotherapy for leukemia and I started facing my mortality and realizing the end was near and realizing the time had come to forgive myself to forgive and forget, to let go, to try and shed this blanket of uh, compartmentalization and just embrace whatever was left for me in this life. Um, How did you, from the story that you've told of this little boy, end up in the policing profession? Well, it it goes to this whole notion of compartmentalization again. Uh, When you hear... RCMP members interviewed on TV and when they're asked, why did you join the RCMP? They almost always say it was to serve and protect, to do noble things, to protect people, to make a difference in this world. For me, it was none of the above. For me, it was a way of escaping my childhood. For me, the RCMP was nothing more than a moving freight train that I could jump on to get away from my childhood. I grew up In my teen years in the Scarborough area of Toronto, with Paul Bernardo as my backyard neighbor, and it just struck me at that time, at at age 18, that the way to get out of this would be join the the French Foreign Legion or the Army or the RCMP or something and just get the heck out of Dodge and go as far away as possible, as quickly as possible. Mm -hmm. 30 years later... I am retiring as an RCMP superintendent, having spent the better part of 30 years as a major crime homicide investigator. I'm just looking at uh, some of the interesting stories you've covered. Uh, you know, the Air India bombing investigation, You were there was a spokesperson, APEC, uh, 
uh, summit that we had here in the 1990s, uh, the Bingo Gate corruption scandal. I recall covering covering the avalanche death of Michel Trudeau, son, of course, of former Prime Minister uh, Pierre Trudeau, and of course, brother to present uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Uh, in 1998, you covered the Holton family massacre in Mission, uh, even Ross Rabiati's gold medal cannabis use uh, to the Clifford Olson's faint hope uh, hearing uh, in Surrey in 1997. And those are just some of your many, many uh, uh, stories you've been involved with, uh, not just as a, someone representing the RCMP in front of the cameras, but actually as a senior investigator behind the scenes uh, as well. I'm, I'm curious in your time, with the RCMP. Uh, did you enjoy your time with the RCMP, first and foremost? Because as I was reading your book, not that it's cynicism, but there is an underlying frustration and anger at the force as well, and the way it's it's not, maybe not it's run, or certainly the, the direction it's taken. The answer to your question is no. Um, I always describe myself as the white sheep of the family, mm-hmm. as the fish out of water, as the person who never belonged. As I say, I didn't join the RCMP to uh, go off to do noble things. It was, for me, a way to constantly run, to escape. Um, often, you, you in the beginning, you often heard of Mark Zuckerberg being referred to as the accidental billionaire. Mm-hmm. If I look back on my career, I was, in many respects, the accidental superintendent. I really didn't want to be in the RCMP. I really want, didn't want to do this job. I didn't really want to be that um, front and center homicide investigator that I became. I never wanted to be promoted to superintendent. It was just a job that gave me that escape I was always looking for. Mm -hmm. One of the other issues that you talked about, actually, a lot is, and and you said it a few times in in the book, that you contemplated suicide within the context of your uh, policing career, and I believe even after your career, I think you were, doing, you were a business consultant at that time. Walk me through like, what was going through your head, uh, how you dealt with that. I mean, when you look at you from the outside, here's a guy who's high profile, uh, going places. And yet, away from all of that, there were moments where you contemplated suicide. It was something I thought of nonstop for basically 60 years behind the... Armani suit behind the fancy RCMP uniform was always this wounded eight-year-old boy. Mm-hmm. It's very similar to the story told in Sheldon Kennedy's book mm-hmm. entitled Why I Didn't Say Anything. In that book, he quite accurately describes that the, the number one thing that possesses us when we go through these things as a, as a youngster is profound shame and despair. It's just something we can never shake. Mm-hmm. Uh, Not mentioned in the book is the fact that in the year 2016, I was actually arrested under the Mental Health Act in Victoria after uh, attempting suicide in my own home. I spent an extended period of time in the psych ward at Royal Jubilee, and uh, it's what got me first on the path to therapy, to being put in touch with the right people to help me unravel what I had built up all these years, and uh, eventually found my, I found myself in the arms and professional treatment of the world, literally the world's best therapist over on the North Shore in, in the year 2019 who guided me on a path of healing and recovery, which then prompted me to write the book. Mm-hmm. She was amazing. 
She got me to talk about all these things. She got me to uh, unravel all the compartmentalization I'd built up. And How hard is that? It's got to be, it's worse than chemotherapy. And as a matter of fact, I'm dealing with chemotherapy and heart failure at the same time I'm going through uh, mental health mm-hmm. uh, treatment, mental health therapy. Exceptionally difficult. Just to go back to the very beginning and to think about, talk about the monster that was my very own mother. The predator that dogged me for 14 years when I was young was a woman, was my mother. Her enabler was my dad. It was exceptionally difficult to to be walked through all that therapy, but it was the best thing that I've ever done. It's allowed me to sit here today across from Jazz Johal and very calmly talk about my life in a way that I never thought I would ever be able to do in the past. Mm-hmm. You know, I, 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 there are moments where, um, you know, it really hit me. It's simple things like when your daughter um, Elena was sick uh, and, and just the impact on you as a dad, um, your wife, Marianne, and the impact she's had on you. Uh, it, it was just a, it was very touching the, in regards to what kind of human being you are. I'm going to go back to the book itself uh, to, compart- to to deal with the core issues and then actually to write the book. And you're dealing with this sickness to this day, this challenge, this medical uh, challenge. So when did you find time in regards to writing it? Well, I actually wrote this book over the last three years, um, sitting upright in a hospital bed. It was a period of time when I underwent 38 separate hospitalizations for what I call the big five, stroke, leukemia, cardiomyopathy, sepsis, and kidney failure, all of which I had at the very same time. Uh, So most of the book was written while I was sitting upright in the ICU at St. Paul's Hospital and Lionsgate Hospital. Uh, at, you know, at three in the morning when it's dark and the nurse comes in to do her rounds. What are you doing, Mr. Grab? Oh, just writing a book. Yeah, right. <laughs> chuckle, chuckle. <laughs> but uh, it was the thing that kept me sane going through all this. Did. And it was the motivator to to stay true to the honesty of the book, to write something that's that's not at all sugarcoated. It's completely unapologetic and is raw vitriolic anger that, that I spew out onto the pages. Uh, Russ, you also sometimes refer to Canadians, which is a broader sort of frustration at society sometimes when you're, uh, uh, when you're uh, angry. And I think it's just a, a broader conversation, but the, the broader society that you're talking to, uh, do you still have that sort of frustration sometimes in regards to society doesn't pay enough attention that we are not um, perhaps sympathetic or we are not... Uh, we've not created a society that helps those that are victims of abuse and make it easy for them to speak up or to provide them the help that they need. Well, I'm still grappling with that notion. As you see, as you saw coming out in the book, I draw the conclusion that back in the 1960s, there were essentially three things that defined Canada and Canadians in general. Number one, willful blindness. Mm-hmm. Number two, grandeur worship. And number three, depraved indifference. 
I maintain in my book, it was those three things and the combination thereof that allowed my mother to thrive as a predator. I still grapple to this day. I still see signs of that to this day. When I think about the downtown east side, I see willful blindness. Mm-hmm. When I think about um, Hockey Canada, I see grandeur worship. When I think about the conversations that we talk about residential schools and how everyone misses the point about the 60s scoop, I think about depraved indifference. When I chit-chat over backyard barbecue with my fellow baby boomers about the 60s scoop, they think we're talking about the 1860s. I still see signs of willful blindness, grandeur worship and depraved difference in the modern world. And I'm being sort of schooled by my friends to sort of tamp down my, uh, my judgment and my anger and to, you know, try and forgive and forget. But honestly, Jazz, if you look closely, and there's going to be a large proportion of your listening audience right now going, this is true. A lot of this still exists. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And uh, I want to recommend this book to our audience as well. It is raw. It is honest. Uh, and it took a lot of courage to write as well. Uh, Russ Grab uh, is the author. And the, uh, the book is called Traces of a Boy, Reflections of the Unfathomable. Russ, thank you so much for coming in. It's so good to see you as well. You too. Thanks for having me on.